Welcome into TYT's The Conversation. It is your host, Adrian Lawrence. And I am joined by a senior reporter for Insider, Ms. Camila Deschalas. Thanks for joining us, Camila. Thanks so much for having me. So you're a senior reporter at Business Insider, where you cover the Justice Department, law enforcement, federal courts. And also you had a long stint working in immigration and last week was wild when it came to immigration. You know, cuz after promising to welcome in more than 60,000 refugees fleeing war and religious persecution last week, the Biden administration announced that it would keep the 15,000 refugee cap that was set by the Trump administration only to turn around and say, wait, we're gonna go back to what we said initially. Why do you think Biden kind of initially went back on his promise? Well, this was a huge issue for a lot of immigration advocacy groups that, you know, for the past four years under the Trump administration really advocated for them to increase the number of refugees that could be admitted to the US. This was a really big selling point for them, especially when Biden promised during his campaign trail that he would increase the number. You know, what we saw under the Obama administration, especially his final year, was that more than 100,000 refugees were admitted into the US. And so people wanted that number of admissions to return back to, you know, the Obama administration to kind of see that same type of admissions into the US. And so to see him kind of keep up the the limit or the number that was admitted under the Trump administration for a lot of people that felt like a slap in the face because they were really looking forward to admitting more refugees into the country. Yes, I'm sure it was pretty jarring for a lot of people. And then to see him kind of flip flop and go back to initial numbers and what he promised, how do you think this has impacted Kind of how individuals view him abroad in terms of immigration policy. I think the biggest point here is the fact that what you've seen time and time again since Biden won the election is that progressive groups and a lot of advocacy groups are going to hold him accountable to a lot of promises that he made during the campaign trail. And so you saw that time and time again, especially since he's been rolling out a lot of executive orders on immigration, that you you find that a lot of advocacy groups want to see him fulfill a lot of the promises that he made. And so this is just one of them. And this is a really big point. You know, you go from, you know, during the final year of Obama administration accepting more than a hundred thousand refugees, and then go from last year when the Trump administration announced that they would only accept fifteen thousand. That's a stark contrast. And a lot of people want to see the levels return to 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 the previous administration and so or the Obama administration. So this is just another kind of promise that Biden has made during the campaign. Trail, and you know, it just shows that progressive and advocacy groups just want to hold him accountable and make sure that he fulfills those types of promises. Yes, accountability is very big, especially now that we are no longer with the Trump administration. And we know that Biden's reversal really comes right now as a nation is kind of struggling with the surge of unaccompanied children at the US Mexico border. And this is an issue that is supposed to be on the plate of Vice President Harris. So how do you think she is gonna handle this moving forward? You know, her aides have made, especially in the White House, have made this clear distinction that she is playing just a small component of the White House's response to address why there's kind of been this influx of migrants going to the border and, you know, arriving and either turning themselves in or being apprehended. And so she's really dealing with the diplomatic component of this, where she is going to start having conversations with presidents of the Central American countries where they're seeing more of a larger number 
number of you know migrants from those countries come to the US. And you know, I think a lot of the aides that I've talked to that have worked with her when she was the California Attorney General and even during her time as Senate has said time and time again that she's going to draw from her experience during those times because that's when she really started building this foundation of her knowledge on immigration policy. And so that's going to be really pivotal part is that she doesn't have as much foreign relations experience of where you know she's conducted these type of diplomatic relations in the past, but she does have extensive experience handling immigration issues and you know really understanding the root causes of what is driving a lot of migrants and unaccompanied minors to come to the border and make that long journey. Yes, she definitely did get some of that experience while being here in the state of California. And hopefully she's able to use her skills abroad. And I also know right here and right now you do cover the courts. And last week we saw some interesting kind of bills come through, particularly as it concerns the Supreme Court and broadening the number of potential jurists who sit up there as justices. And kind of what's your take on the read of whether this can happen, of whether we can actually go from nine to 13? I think this is going to just be a really long debate in the Senate. You see a lot of Democratic lawmakers pushing for this to expand the court. You also have a lot of groups on the ground that are really, really driving this conversation of what it would look like. And so you've seen kind of in the past few weeks that the Biden administration has kind of tilted their head and said that, hey, we are going to examine what this would look like and what types of recommendations we would make to see if expanding the Supreme Court is a choice to really move forward. You know, he signed an executive order to start a commission to really examine what that would look like. And, you know, this is going to be a really contentious issue because you've seen from Republicans, they do not want to expand the court. But this is something that is really a driving force for a lot of Senate Democratic lawmakers right now. Yeah, and they have pretty good reason because, in part, the court right now, as it's stacked as being hyper conservative, it's somewhat problematic in that it is not a significant true reflection of the nation and the values of a lot of people in our country. And so it should be interesting to see how this plays out. But something I was always thinking of as well is how Chief Justice Roberts would be receptive of having a court of 13 as opposed to nine. Do you think he welcomes it? I think there's it's divided among the court. You know, what we've heard a lot from some groups that have been, you know, driving these conversations of expanding the court is that they really want a lot of representation. You know, that they want the Supreme Court judges, justices to really reflect America and you know the diversity that there is in this country. And so I think that's what's really driving this. You know, Biden has pledged that he would nominate a black female judge to the Supreme Court if there was a seat available. And so a lot of them are saying that you know we can't really wait until to see what the election results may be in the midterm election that we should really try to expand the court now while there's still a slim majority of Democrats controlling the Senate and also the House as well. Yes, this would definitely be the time to do so. I kind of like to think that Chief Justice Roberts would love to expand the court so he doesn't have to be the swing vote. Because as we've seen recently with a number of significant decisions, he has been the one to side with the generally liberal side despite being known as a conservative justice. But I think he fully appreciates that that there needs to be a little bit of balance. But in terms of your work and what you're doing at Business Insider, is there anything you're working on in particular that you feel is driving change or really getting stories told? 
I think something that I'm closely monitoring is these conversations about what police reform looks like at the local level. Like we have seen now that especially on the federal level, a lot of lawmakers are really driving these conversations and also introducing bills to reform law enforcement. And that's gained some popularity from some groups and animosity towards others. But it's really interesting to kind of see how Congress is going to work together and lawmakers from both parties to work together to try to pass a bill on the federal level that can drastically drastically reform what law enforcement looks like on the state and local level. Yes, it seems that reform is necessary as I know there's a big push for reform as well as defunding the police. And we're hearing a lot of voices, especially after we saw last week with the Adam Toledo body cam footage coming out that was absolutely jarring, we're in the middle of the conclusion of the Derek Chauvin trial. And we just saw Dante Wright unfortunately lose his life. And it seems to be a lot of problems, particularly concerning law enforcement and whether we are necessarily getting the truth, but we definitely know we're getting a lot of force being used. So how do you think that lawmakers could best approach it and still maintain their constituent support? I think there's a lot of concern that they don't want to get too specific within these legislations because not one size fits all in different counties and different districts and states. And so I think they want to be very mindful that they want to still give some autonomy to the state and local level to kind of decide you know, what they deem is appropriate when it comes to trainings, when it comes to providing more resources. And and there's a big question of, you know, what money what money should be allocated to certain resources when it comes to law enforcement. And so I think especially with a lot of the cases and a lot of the the shootings have, have occurred in these past few weeks, there's going to be a lot of pressure put on lawmakers to get a bill to pass Congress and to really respond to the needs of reforming law enforcement in this country. Yep, and I think that, that a lot of people are finally recognizing that is something important that needs to be done because unfortunately we have way too many citizens dying, civil rights violations, as well as law enforcement being caught in not necessarily being wholly truthful. And so there does definitely need to be change as there seems to be a lot of bad apples out there. But we definitely know that when there is change or even progress toward it, we can rely on you to cover it. So Camila, can you please tell the viewers where they can find more about you? and also read about your work. Yes, you can find and you can follow my reporting on Twitter at C Deschalis. It's on Twitter and you can follow my reporting there. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And welcome back to TYT's The Conversation. I'm your host, Adrian Lawrence. And now we're joined by the grant making director of the Bush Foundation. That's an organization that invests in great ideas and the people who power them in Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, and the 23 Native Nations. Welcome in, Jackie Statham Allen. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Thank you, Adrian. It's great to have you. So recently, the Bush Foundation announced that it's committing $100 million to seed two community trust funds that directly support wealth building for black and native communities in areas of the Midwest. That is a huge commitment. Now, what inspired the foundation to make this contribution? Yeah, well, the foundation was inspired to make this commitment because we work to make our region better for everyone. And we feel that by addressing racial wealth gaps, that that is one of the most important things that we can do for our region. 
And the reason why that is, is because the racial wealth gaps, especially for black and Native American families, they're huge, it's profound. In 2019, the median black household had just 13 cents of wealth for every dollar of the typical white household. And for Native Americans, that gap was eight cents for every dollar. So as you can see, the gaps are huge and they are a result of the lasting impact of centuries of race-based US policy. Yeah, and it is something that is jarring for all of us, especially when you hear numbers like that and you think, what happened there? And I know a lot of people like to think, oh, you know, slavery, you know, types of internment camps and all sorts of things went on, but they were so long ago, yet the racial wealth gap persists. Why do you think that is? Yeah, that is such a great point. So racial wealth gaps and wealth, wealth is generational. And so when we take a look at US-based, race-based policy that happens long ago, that impact still matters. So for instance, when we think about slavery, so of course there were profound injustices around denied human rights and freedoms and torture and death, but it's also a quantifiable economic impact. When we take a look at those unpaid wages of enslaved people, and what that meant for their descendants, that's $20 trillion today. And then if we think about Native Americans and US policy, like the General Allotment Act of 1887, that put into motion a 65% decrease in the land that was held by tribes. That's 90 million acres of wealth that was denied to that community. And that's and those are things that happened long ago, but we can also look at the Homestead Act. We could look at the GI Bill, Social Security Act. Again and again, US policy disadvantaged black and Native American communities and it advantaged white communities. And because wealth is generational, those impacts still matter today. Yes, definitely, they definitely do matter. And it's interesting that you say that because I think recently it might have been the Manhattan Beach, California area that there's a region of land out there that was essentially taken away from the black owners. And now it's being given back, which is significant. But there are so many instances of that kind of just robbery and pillage that has gone on, a lot of it state and government sanctioned. And as a result, you know, we have this racial wealth gap. And I know a lot of people will hear about it, but they don't necessarily fully appreciate what it looks like nowadays in terms of the consequences. So can you think of any kind of direct impacts that racial wealth gap has for individuals? Oh, absolutely. So wealth is generational and wealth is a predictor for future outcomes. When someone has access to wealth, then they are better able to take advantage of opportunities like education or buying a home or starting a small business. When someone has access to wealth, then they are better able to persevere through hardships or unexpected financial difficulties. And frankly, wealthier people are healthier people. And so wealth is one of the most critical determinants in life opportunities and outcomes in our country. And so by closing wealth gaps, it can make a difference in addressing virtually all other social and economic disparities in our country. That intersection between race and class, then you know what? It's very, very close and much aligned. So that would be something to work toward fixing, which is great that the Bush Foundation is making this huge commitment. And I know it's dedicated to seeking steward organizations to receive that 100 million and to design and manage the grant programs. And why did you seek to go through steward organizations? 
Yeah, so this is um, something that I'm really proud of about this initiative. Um, I think it's one of the things that really makes it unique in that this is an exercise in power sharing. So the Bush Foundation, we established the lightest of frameworks. We know that we want to address racial wealth gaps through um, grants to individuals. And we have suggested three contributing factors that we think can really um, impact wealth, which include education, um, home ownership, and small businesses. And we are seeking steward organizations who are going to operate those, those grant programs for individuals. Because they are the ones who are closest to the communities. They're the ones that the communities know and trust. And because we really value the expertise and the connections that steward organizations will have with the community. And we feel that we will have better, stronger, more efficient grant programs to address this enormous challenge by going with communities that are, by going with organizations that are very close to the community. And I know that you're co-leading this $100 million commitment at the Bush Foundation, which is a huge responsibility as I would imagine. Now, if you can share, what will you all be looking for when it comes to selecting the stewarding organizations? Yeah, so I am co-leading this initiative with the Lakota woman, Eileen Briggs. And what we will be looking for are organizations that have very close ties with the community. They need to have credibility, they, they, they need to understand how work that is informed by the community results in better solutions. Also, we are looking for organizations that have experience in running grant programs and organizations that can manage a $50 million or $100 million trust fund because that will be a large challenge in receiving those, those funds for the community trust funds and then making sure that they are operating sound, effective grant program for individuals. Wow, that's still, I keep thinking about that $100 million, that is a lot. And I know this is pretty unprecedented. Have you ever seen anything like this? Yeah, so we were inspired by the work of Edgar Villanueva and his book, Decolonizing Wealth, in which he threw out the idea, what would happen if foundations took 10% of their endowments and place that into programs that were specifically for Black and Native American individuals to benefit from. And when we decided to do this, we reached out to Edgar and said, "Hey, you know, what have you learned when you know foundations have done this work?" And he informed us that really we are at the forefront of this work. So we are very proud to be a part of this, and we are glad that we are part of a entire ecosystem. A movement of organizations and individuals who want to build a more just society for Americans and who want to contribute to this very profound racial wealth gap issue. Yes, that's huge because it definitely can't be done alone. And so having organizations like the Bush Foundation make this kind of investment and commitment, that is significant. So thank you very much, I appreciate that investment. And I cannot wait to follow what it does in terms of making change. And as I also understand it, the Bush Foundation isn't just investing 100 million, but there's also an additional 50 million in funding being invested. What's that money earmarked for? Yeah, that's right. So there's an additional $50 million that we will be, that we have committed over the next five years to organizations through our existing grant programs. And here we will be granting two organizations that are addressing systemic 
um, issues around uh, the racial wealth gap. And so understanding that through our community trust funds, we will be able to empower and, 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 and provide grants to individuals, but also understanding that there are systemic reasons why individuals need these, these supports in order to build wealth. So the additional 50 million will go to organizations that are working on systemic issues around wealth for Native American, Black communities, and all communities of color and other communities within our region. And as much as things right now are kind of in turmoil, we have a lot of things going on there in the Midwest, particularly in Minnesota and in Chicago. And it seems that there is really an igniting of having these conversations again about policing, about injustice, about racial division there. And I know that that's kind of where the Bush Foundation really operates there in the Midwest and uplifting the individuals there and those voices. How would you say the Bush Foundation looks to approach these things when we have to confront them as we are doing right now? Yeah, well, we see these things that all being related. So when we think about our initiative, which is specifically to address racial wealth gaps, we see that those wealth disparities are related to race-based US policy. And so just as there are direct through lines from broken treaties to unemployment rates and through lines from slavery to incarceration, there are also through lines from US policy to the way in which black and brown people are interact with, with the police. And so we see that wealth may be a less visible way of racial injustice, but it is a very important mechanism for us to build a more just US society. Absolutely, and the Bush Foundation will be hosting an informational webinar for potential stewarding organizations tomorrow, Tuesday, April 20th at 2 p.m. Central Time. And you can find out more at the Bush Foundation website. And where is that located, Jackie? It's at www.bushfoundation.org. Thanks.